the individual as an ensemble. Development of tools with a voice for multiple applications creates the possibility for dispersal of the individual into multiple simultaneous activities. The individual will no longer be singular, but potentially an ensemble of dozens or perhaps even thousands of activities undertaken through intelligent agents. This will not only greatly enhance the productive capability of the most talented individuals, it will also make the sovereign individual potentially far more formidable militarily than the individual has ever been before. Not only will one individual be able to manifestly multiply his activities by employing an essentially unlimited number of intelligent agents, he or she will even be able to act after death. For the first time, an individual will be capable of carrying on elaborate tasks, even if he is biologically dead. It will no longer be possible for either an enemy at war or a criminal to completely extinguish the capability of an individual to retaliate by killing him. This is one of the more revolutionary innovations in the logic of violence in the whole of history. Insights for the Information Age The biggest changes in life occur to variables that no one watches. Or, to put it another way, we take for granted variables that have fluctuated very little for centuries or even hundreds of generations. For most of history, if not for most of human existence, the balance between protection and extortion has fluctuated within a narrow margin, with extortion always holding the upper hand. Now that is about to change. Information technology is laying the groundwork for a fundamental shift in the factors that determine the costs and rewards of resorting to violence. The fact that intelligent agents will be available to investigate and perhaps retaliate in one fashion or another against those who initiate violence is merely a hint of this new vista in protection. Twenty-five years ago, the following statement would have been no more than the ranting of a crank. If you kill me, I will sweep the money out of your bank accounts and give it to charities in Nepal. After the turn of the millennium, it may not be. Whether it would prove to be a practical threat would be determined by factors of time and place. Yet, even if the would-be miscreant's accounts proved to be impermeable, there would surely be other costly mischief that an army of intelligent agents could impose in retaliation for a crime. Think about it. New Alternatives in Protection This is only one of many ways to enhance protection that are being opened by the technology of the information age, most of which tend to undermine the near monopoly on protection and extortion that has been enjoyed by governments in the past two centuries. Even without the new technological razzle-dazzle, there have always been alternatives for protection, not all of which have tended to be monopolized by government. A person who feels threatened may simply run away. When the world was young and horizons were open, the option to flee was commonly employed. When people worry about losses due to theft or vandalism, they may elect to purchase insurance policies to indemnify such risks. Curses and spells, although weak forms of protection, have also saved lives and warded off acts of theft. They sometimes work in societies where predators are superstitious, Valuables may also be protected by being hidden. This is sometimes an effective method when it can be employed. Assets can be buried, secured with locks, placed behind high walls and rigged with sirens and electronic monitoring devices. But hiding person and property have not always been practical. For all the variety of means of protection that have been employed historically, one method has dominated all others. The capacity to trump violence with violence. To call on greater force to overwhelm anyone who would assault you or steal your property. The question is where you can turn for such a service, and how you can motivate anyone to risk life and limb to help you battle thugs who might initiate force against you. Sometimes close relatives have answered the call. Sometimes tribal and clan-based groups have served as an unofficial police responding to violence against any of their members with blood vendettas. Sometimes mercenaries or private guards have been employed to fend off attack, but not always as usefully as you might wish. The new intelligent agents of the information age, although their activities will be largely confined to cyberspace, 
add a new alternative. Their loyalties, unlike those of the mercenaries, private guards, and even remote cousins, will be beyond dispute. The Paradoxes of Power The use of violence to protect against violence is fraught with paradoxes. Under conditions that have heretofore existed, any group or agency that you could employ to successfully protect your life and wealth from attack would also necessarily have had the capacity to take either. That is a drawback, for which there is no easy answer. Normally, you could look to competition to keep providers of an economic service from ignoring the wishes of their customers, but where violence is concerned, direct competition often has perverse results. In the past, it has usually led to increased violence. When two would-be protective agencies send their forces to arrest one another, the result is more akin to civil war than protection. When you are seeking protection from violence, you normally do not wish to increase the output of violence, but to suppress it. And to suppress it on terms that do not allow the plundering of the customers who pay for the protection service in the first place. During the time men live without a common power to keep them all in awe, they are in that condition which is called war, and such a war as is of every man against every man, wherein men live without other security than what their own strength and their own inventions shall furnish them withal. Thomas Hobbes Monopoly and Anarchy this is why anarchy, or the war of all against all, as Hobbes described it, has seldom been a satisfactory state of affairs. Local competition in the use of violence has usually meant paying higher costs for protection and enjoying less of it. Occasionally, free-thinking enthusiasts for the market have suggested that market mechanisms alone would be sufficient to provide for policing of property rights and protection of life without any need for a sovereignty whatsoever. Some of the analytics have been elegant, but the fact remains that free market provision of police and justice services has not proven viable under the megapolitical conditions of industrialism. Only primitive societies where behavior is highly stereotyped and populations are tiny and homogenous have been able to survive without governments to provide the service of locally monopolizing protection through violence. Examples of anarchic societies above the level of the hunting and gathering tribe are few and ancient. They are all among the simplest economies of isolated rainwater farmers. The Kafirs in pre-Muslim Afghanistan, some Irish tribes in the Dark Ages, some Indian bands in Brazil, Venezuela, and Paraguay, other aboriginals in scattered parts of the world. Their methods of organizing protection without government are known only to connoisseurs of extreme cases. Primitive groups were able to function without a distinct organization specializing in violence only because they were small, closed societies, and they were isolated. They could draw on tight kinship relations to defend against most violent threats on a limited scale, which were the only sort they were likely to encounter. When they encountered larger threats— organized by states, they were overpowered and subjected to rule monopolized by outside groups. This happened over and over. Wherever societies have formed at a scale above bands and tribes, especially where trade routes brought different peoples into contact, specialists in violence have always emerged to plunder any surplus more peaceful people could produce. When technological conditions raised the returns to violence, they doomed societies that were not organized to channel large resources into making war. Which princes were rendering the service of police? Which were racketeers or even plunderers? A plunderer could become, in effect, the chief of police as soon as he regularized his take, adapted it to the capacity to pay, defended his preserve against other plunderers, and maintained his territorial monopoly long enough for custom to make it legitimate. Frederick C. Lane Government as a Seller of Protection As we have said at several points, government's principal economic function from the perspective of those who pay the taxes is to provide protection of life and property. 
Yet the government often operates like organized crime, extracting resources from people within its sphere of operations as tribute or plunder. Government is not only a protection service, it is also a protection racket. While government provides protection against violence originating with others, like the protection racket, it also charges customers for protection against harm that it would otherwise impose itself. The first action is an economic service, the second is a racket. In practice, the distinction between the two forms of protection may be difficult to make. Governments, as Charles Tilly has pointed out, may perhaps be best understood as our largest examples of organized crime. The activities of even the best government usually involved some mixture of the economic service of protection combined with extortion. Historically, both pursuits could be optimized if the government could impose a near monopoly on coercion within the territories where it operates. In cases where a single armed group could establish predominance in the use of violence, the quality of the protection service it could provide was normally far superior to what could be had from one of several competing protection agencies thrown into battle over the same territory. A Natural Monopoly on Land Achievement of a local monopoly of coercion not only allowed a government to more effectively protect its potential customers from violence initiated by others, it also greatly reduced the government's operating costs. As Lane put it, the violence-using, violence-controlling industry was a natural monopoly, at least on land. Within territorial limits, the service it rendered could be produced much more cheaply by a monopoly. Thus, a monopoly of the use of force within a contiguous territory enabled a protection-producing enterprise to improve its product and reduce its costs. Such a governing organization could offer more protection with less expense if it did not have to engage in incessant military actions to fend off competitive groups seeking to extract protection payments from its customers. The prospect that information technology will help relax the assumption that sovereignty must be based upon a territorial monopoly has already attracted the attention of political theorists. It is the theme of Beyond Sovereignty, Territory and Political Economy in the 21st Century by David J. Elkins. Elkins echoes our thesis that monopoly governments are destined to be disintermediated, much as religious monopolies were in the years following 1500. He writes, We used to assume that religions should have their own territory or turf. As nations replaced universal religion as the sovereign arbiters of life and death, the compactness and boundedness of religion gave way to our now familiar intermingling of believers in the same area. Instead, we refuse to countenance the intermingling of nations, or provinces for that matter, although I believe this assumption is in the process of breaking down. He goes on to argue, in keeping with our view, that territorial monopolies on sovereignty can be broken down without anarchy as evidenced by the split in sovereignty between national and provincial governments in a federal system like Canada's, and by the condominium government involving joint French and British sovereignty that characterized some Pacific islands for much of this century. Thus, while territorial monopolies on sovereignty have rarely been unbundled by force, they can be unbundled by agreement. According to Elkins, and we agree, the territorial nation has been a bundle or basket into which other facets of our lives are fit. It is similar to the economic concept of a basket of goods. You cannot easily get items individually, but must take them collectively. In a restaurant, one can order a la carte, but as far as our identities are concerned, we must take what nations have bundled together, which amounts to table d'hôte. Government a la carte will seem natural to citizens in the 21st century. There is no development that will contribute more dramatically to the disaggregation of sovereignty and the rise of government a la carte than the emergence of a cyber economy that altogether transcends physical borders. As frequencies rise and wavelengths drop, digital performance improves exponentially. Bandwidth rises, power usage shrinks, antenna size shrinks, interference collapses, error rates plummet. George Gilder the law of the telecosm repeals the laws of nations. We are not alone in seeing that bandwidth, or the carrying capacity of communications media, 
is destined to trump the territorial state. Jim Taylor and Watts Wacker, authors of The 500-Year Delta, What Happens After What Comes Next, do not define their argument as we do, but they see clearly that access creates globalism and globalism disrupts political systems by making the concept of borders obsolete. As borders disappear, the concept of taxation, which supports governments, becomes increasingly fragile. As borders disappear, the concept of entitlement, the belief that because you were born in a particular place, you are entitled to the economic advantages associated with that place, falls apart. And as it falls apart, the perks of nationhood fall apart with it. And as all that happens, the ideals that underlie nationhood patriotism, democracy, the state, the melting pot, unification, responsible participation, whatever they happen to be in whatever nation one is living in, get relegated to the junk heap of history. Without saying so explicitly, they, too, apparently sense that history is moving toward the liberation of the sovereign individual. As they say, on the horizon waits a much purer form of individualism than democracy, as we now understand it, allows. How will this happen? Taylor and Wacker see a powerful dynamic at work. The simple fact is that the larger sense of patriotism, a love of nation, a sense of filial duty to it, is not a particularly useful predisposition to have any longer. Citizens who thrive in the global society will identify themselves globally. They will make political, social, and economic choices based not on national identity, but on how those choices relate to themselves directly and to people like them around the world. Nations and corporations who thrive will organize themselves accordingly. They will maximize the freedom to know, to go, to do, and to be. Nations and corporations that don't, that continue to fight rearguard actions based on nostalgia, will atrophy. The devaluation of physical borders implied by the tripling of bandwidth each year and the geometric growth of the Internet and World Wide Web will accelerate the process of disintermediating governments. Indeed, a continuation of the annual tripling of bandwidth until the year 2012 would imply a billion-fold growth in bandwidth since 1993, when George Gilder first suggested that bandwidth was destined to compound even faster than the capacity of microprocessors. If this comes to pass, as we believe it will, to judge by recent breakthroughs in integrated optics, the abundance of communications capability that would be created would result in a fantastic increase in cyber commerce. With wave division multiplexing, a single fiber strand, as thin as a human hair, has the capacity to carry one trillion bits per second. In other words, a single fiber optic cable could accommodate 25 times more bits than the total load of all of the world's communications networks combined. The capacity for expansion is stupefying. With this much communications capacity unleashed, vastly more money will be spent on communication because it will be so cheap. And such established media as dedicated telephony and television will become anachronisms. The World Wide Web will deliver a richer mix of signals to every computer than consumers experience with network television today. As the bandwidth revolution unfolds, it will draw people more and more into the borderless virtual world of online communities and cyber commerce, a world with enough graphic density to become the metaverse, the kind of alternative cyberspace reality imagined by the science fiction novelist Neil Stevenson. Stevenson's metaverse is a virtual community with its own laws, princes, and villains. As ever more economic activity is drawn into cyberspace, the value of the state's monopoly power within borders will shrink, giving states a growing incentive to franchise and fragment their sovereignty. Just as nation-states today have incentives to host free ports, free trade zones, and zona francas, so they will have incentives to lease their sovereignty. We have already discussed the well-advanced negotiations between the 900-year-old Sovereign Military Hospital or Order of St. John of Jerusalem of Rhodes and of Malta, more commonly known as the Knights of Malta, and the Republic of Malta to return sovereignty over Fort St. Angelo to the Order. We expect these negotiations to be successfully concluded. 
others will follow. Some nation-states will cede sovereignty over small enclaves and remote areas to entirely new affinity groups and virtual communities. Indeed, it is not unlikely that commercial entities, such as security firms and hotel chains, will bid for sovereignty over small patches of territory. Wackenhut, Pinkerton, and Argenbright may, in the future, offer hybrid gated retirement communities and tax-free zones in attractive climates around the world. Religious entities like the Knights of Malta, but representing every conceivable denomination, will try in their own ways to make heaven incarnate in certain out-of-the-way corners of the earth. Even wealthy individuals and families will possess their own plots where they will exercise limited sovereignty issue their own stamps and passports, and maintain a website. Monopoly and Plunder Note that the incentives to share or lease sovereignty for a fee are quite different from those that have historically faced rulers exposed to military competition with their local monopoly of coercion. Leased sovereignty is no more destabilizing than hosting a free trade zone. By contrast, military competition for power, of the kind pursued by battling warlords and guerrilla bands, directly affects whether the would-be government has stronger incentives to protect people within its grasp or to plunder them. Where contending groups wrestle and maneuver in uneasy balance, the incentives to use predatory violence increase. Plunder becomes more attractive— Because power is less stable and the local monopoly of coercion less secure— the time horizons of those with the capacity to employ violence shrinks. The king of the mountain may stand on such a slippery slope that he could not expect to survive long enough to realize a share of the substantial gains that ultimately result from containing violence. When that is the case, there is little to prevent those who command what passes for government from employing their power to terrorize and pillage society. The logic of force, therefore, tells you that the more competing armed groups there are operating in any territory, the higher the likelihood that they will resort to predatory violence. Without a single overwhelming power to suppress freelance violence, it tends to proliferate, and many of the gains of economic and social cooperation go up in smoke. The damage that can occur when violence is given full reign in a condition of anarchy is demonstrated by the fate of China under the warlords in the 1920s. It is a story we recounted in The Great Reckoning. The competing warlords imposed great damage in areas where there was no single overwhelming power to keep them in check. Similar stories illustrating a similar point have been broadcast to the world in living color by CNN news crews braving the streets of Mogadishu, Somalia. The armed forces of Somalia's warlords, nicknamed the Technicals, brought anarchy to that sad country before the United States led a massive military intervention to contain them. When the commanding might of U.S. forces was withdrawn, the technicals brought out their weapons again, and anarchy resumed. A report in the Washington Post observed, Pickup trucks mounted with anti-aircraft guns are once again plowing the dusty, rubble-strewn streets. Back, too, are the swaggering young men in T-shirts and Kalashnikov rifles slung over their shoulders, extorting money from passing cars and buses at makeshift roadblocks. One militia-controlled neighborhood here is so heavily armed that locals refer to it as Bosnia-Herzegovina. Traveling around this city's mean streets today is strikingly reminiscent of the days in 1992, when chaotic warfare among rival militias plunged Somalia into anarchy and a famine. That prompted a U.S.-led military intervention. Once again, to traverse Mogadishu, travelers must hire a carload of armed thugs, hoping they will deliver protection for a hundred bucks a day, plus time off for lunch. The examples of Somalia, Rwanda, and others you will soon see on television offer a technicolor proof that violent competition for control of territory does not yield the same immediate economic gains as other forms of competition. To the contrary, the roving bandits and looters who compete under anarchy lack even the weak incentives to protect productive activity that sometimes lighten even the heavy hand of dictators when their rule is secure. The society of what we call the modern age is characterized, above all in the West, by a certain level of monopolization. 
Free use of military weapons is denied the individual and reserved to a central authority of whatever kind, and likewise the taxation of the property or income of individuals is concentrated in the hands of a central social authority. The financial means thus flowing into this central authority maintain its monopoly of military force, while this in turn maintains the monopoly of taxation. Neither has, in any sense, precedence over the other. There are two sides of the same monopoly. If one disappears, the other automatically follows. The monopoly rule may sometimes be shaken more strongly on one side than on the other. Norbert Elias The Evolution of Protection Lane developed an argument that we have misappropriated for our purposes in imagining how the information age may unfold. He argued that the history of Western economies, since the Dark Ages, can be interpreted in terms of four stages of competition and monopoly in the organization of violence. While Lane is largely silent about the megapolitical factors that we identify as influencing the scale at which governments operate, his exploration of the economics of violence coincides closely with the argument we spelled out in Blood in the Streets and The Great Reckoning, and elsewhere in this volume. We have already analyzed some of the megapolitical factors that played a role in the evolution of Western society following the fall of Rome. Lane also examined this period, focusing on the economic consequences of that competition to monopolize violence. He discerned four important stages in the functioning of economies over the past thousand years, each involving a different phase in the organization of violence. Note that Lane's four stages of competition and monopoly in the use of violence are different from the four stages in the organization of economic life that we identify, namely foraging, farming, industrialism, and the information age. Out of the Dark Ages The first stage is one of anarchy and plunder that marked the feudal revolution of a thousand years ago. While Lane does not specify the dates for any of his summary periods, arithmetic sets the boundary of his first period quite clearly, and his description of the stage of anarchy and plunder seems to match conditions during the transition from the Dark Ages, when the use of violence was highly competitive even on land. He does not say why, but when violence is highly competitive, this usually means that there are significant obstacles to the projection of power at any distance. In military terms, defense is predominant over the offense. For reasons we explained in Chapter 3, this stage of anarchy and plunder coincided with falling productivity of agriculture due to adverse climatic changes. Since technology offered few effective economies of scale to help in securing a monopoly of violence at the time, competition between would-be rulers was widespread. Economic activity was smothered. The weakness of the economy made the problem of establishing a stable order worse. To create a local monopoly of violence involved too high a cost in military activity in proportion to the meager value of economic turnover. Without the capacity to enforce an effective monopoly over an economically viable territory, the armed knights on horseback terrorized and plundered while providing little in the way of protection for their customers. Feudalism the second stage begins when small regional or provincial monopolies are established. Agricultural production then rises, and most of the surplus is collected by recently established monopolists of violence. Still, the surplus is relatively meager during this second stage, which we identify with the early Middle Ages. Economic growth is held down by the absence of advantages of scale in the organization of violence, which keeps the military costs of enforcing local monopolies high. But while the costs remain high, the price that many sovereignties can charge for protection rises, since economic activity expands when anarchy is curtailed. During a late phase of the second stage, many tribute-takers attract customers by special offers to agricultural and commercial enterprise. They offer protection at low prices for those who will bring new lands into cultivation and special policing services to encourage trade, such as that organized by the Counts of Champagne for merchants coming to their fairs. In other words, when they were able to establish a sufficient control over territory to negotiate credibly, local warlords did what local merchants do when they need to increase market share. They discounted their services to attract customers. 
The warlords later used the added resources from additional economic activity to consolidate their control over larger territories. Once that control was firmly established, they began to enjoy more of the advantages of monopoly. Their military costs for policing tended to fall, and they could also increase the price they charged without worrying that this made their service less attractive to customers. In this complicated stage in Western history, those who employ violence, the medieval lords and monarchs, take most of the surplus above subsistence. There are few merchants. The most successful are those who are best able to evade or minimize the taxes, fees, and other costs imposed by those demanding money for protection services. The Early Modern Period A third stage is reached when the merchants and landowners, who are not also specialists in violence, are getting more of the economy's surplus than our fiefholders and monarchs. In this third stage, the enterprises specializing in the use of violence receive less of the surplus than do enterprises that buy protection from the governments. Since successful merchants are more likely to reinvest their profits than consume them, the higher profits of merchants in that stage in history led to self-reinforcing growth. The Factory Age Lane identifies the passage from the third to the fourth stage with the emergence of technological and industrial innovations as more important factors in earning profits than lowering the costs of protection. By this, Lane seems to refer to the periods since 1750. From that time on, the character of technology began to play a clearly dominating role in the prosperity of regions. To take an extreme case, even areas where no government existed at all, as was the case in some parts of New Zealand, for example, prior to 1840, were not likely to become highly prosperous simply because they paid no taxes. At that point in history, innovations in industrial technology were more important to achieving profits than any savings that could be had by lowering the costs for protection, even to zero. As the scale of government rose, the credit and financing mechanisms originally pioneered by governments to raise resources for military operations became available to finance business enterprises of larger scale. Although Lane does not say so, the concentration of technological advantages in a given locale reduced the competition between jurisdictions and allowed enterprises specializing in the use of violence, or governments, to charge higher prices when there are large technological gaps between the competitors in one jurisdiction and another, as there were during the Industrial Age, entrepreneurs in the jurisdictions with the best technology tend to make more money, even though they may have to pay higher taxes and other costs to their governments. Plunder with a Smile Governments in the Industrial Age enjoyed a delightful monopoly to exploit. Their actual costs for providing protection of life and limb were vanishingly small relative to the prices, taxes, they charged. Yet they really were in a realm where competition was so perverse that they could engage far more in the business of plunder than in that of protection, and still have that fact go all but unnoticed. It was a rare moment in history. The drawbacks of anarchy under the megapolitical conditions of industrialism made competition in protection services within the same territory technologically infeasible. The only way to achieve effective protection under those conditions was to command a greater capability to employ violence. Therefore, there was little to be gained by attempting to better distinguish that portion of one's taxes that went, in Lane's words, as payment for the service rendered from another part that one is tempted to call plunder. The distinction was surely real enough, but since one was stuck paying the taxes in any event, developing it fully had little to commend it other than satisfying morbid curiosity. As Lane said, no matter what portion of the taxes was plunder, they were a price one had to pay to avoid more severe losses. The Rise of Incomes Under Industrialism Part of the reason this dilemma was tolerable during the past two centuries of domination by the nation-state was the fact that incomes were rising dramatically, particularly in the jurisdictions where most industrial development was confined. Those running the OECD governments took a higher percentage of incomes almost every year, but the increase in plunder was nonetheless accompanied by far greater prosperity 
and a greater inequality of wealth with the rest of the world. Under such conditions, objections to the surge of taxation were inevitably marginal and insufficient to deflect events from their logical progression. Indeed, for reasons spelled out in previous chapters, the military survival of an industrial nation-state largely depended upon the fact that no effective limits could be placed upon its claims on the resources of its citizens. In every industrial state, policies meandered in more or less the same direction. At the high-water mark of industrialism after World War II, the rate of marginal income taxes reached 90% or higher. This was a far more aggressive assertion of the right of the state to extract resources than even the oriental despots of the early hydraulic civilizations were prone to make. Yet the industrial version of plunder followed its own logic. Much of it was determined by the character of industrial technology in the first half of the 20th century that we described earlier. This technology made it all but inevitable that the state would seize and redistribute a large fraction of income, with much of the burden of the plunder falling upon a small segment of capitalists. Most industrial processes were heavily dependent on natural resources, and therefore tied to the sites where the resources were located. A steel mill, a mine, or a port could be moved only at staggering expense, or not at all. Such facilities were therefore stationary targets that could easily be taxed. Property, corporate, and severance taxes grew sharply over this century. So did income taxes, first on the capitalists, but eventually on the workers themselves. The advent of large-scale industrial employment made a broadly-based income tax practical. Wages could be garnished at the source, with the tax authorities coordinating collections with the accounting departments of industrial firms. We take this for granted today, but collecting an income tax at the factory gate was a far simpler task than fanning out over the countryside to squeeze a portion of the profits from millions of independent craftsmen and farmers. In short, industrial technology tended to make taxation more routinized, more predictable, and less personally dangerous than taxation in many earlier periods. Nonetheless, it extracted a higher percentage of society's resources than any form of sovereignty had done before. Protecting what? The fact that societies could become richer while the total percentage of income absorbed in taxes rose significantly invites a question about the character of the protection that governments provided to industrial economies. What were they protecting? Our answer primarily industrial installations with high capital costs and significant vulnerability to attack. The presence of large-scale industrial firms would not have been possible in a disordered environment with more competitive violence, even if the result of the competition had been to shrink the overall share of output taken by government. This is why capital-intensive operations are uneconomic in the American slums, as well as in third-world societies where ad hoc violence is endemic. Industrial society as a whole was able to proceed because a certain kind of order was established and maintained. Enterprises were subject to regular, predictable shakedowns rather than erratic violence. Even during the height of industrialism, it was always an exaggeration to speak of a government employing a monopoly of force. All governments try to maintain such a monopoly, but as we have seen, Employees of industrial corporations usually found that they were able to employ violence against their employers. As long as the general public has access to any arms at all, or a disorderly crowd retains the physical capacity to overturn a bus or throw rocks at police, those who control the government do not totally monopolize force. They merely control predominant force, dominant to a degree that it becomes uneconomic for most people to compete with them under existing conditions. A net-based government can operate only by consent of the governed. Any net government must therefore provide its citizens with real benefits if it wants them to stick around. Those benefits may not be just personal goods or services, but rather the broader benefits of a regulatory regime, a clean, transparent marketplace with defined rules and consequences, or a supervised community where children can trust the people they encounter of individuals' privacy is protected. Esther Dyson The Information Age 
The information age is bringing into being a fifth stage in the evolution of competition in the use of violence in the West. This stage was not anticipated by Lane. This fifth phase involves competition in cyberspace, an arena not subject to monopolization by any violence-using enterprise. It is not subject to monopolization because it is not a territory. Although Lane's argument incorporates conventional post-war assumptions about the inevitability of the nation-state, he recognized a point that will be more crucial to understanding the future than it may have seemed 40 or 50 years ago. That is the fact that governments have never established stable monopolies of coercion over the open sea. Think about it. No government's laws have ever exclusively applied there. This is a matter of the utmost importance in understanding how the organization of violence and protection will evolve as the economy migrates into cyberspace, which has no physical existence at all. For the same reasons that Lane noted in observing that no government has ever been able to monopolize violence on the sea, it is even less likely that a government could successfully monopolize an infinite realm without physical boundaries. Competition without anarchy In the past, when conditions made it difficult for any single violence-wielding entity to establish a monopoly, the results were anarchy and plunder. The information age, however, has changed the technological terms under which violence is organized and done so in a profound way. Unlike the past, when the inability to monopolize protection in a region meant higher military costs and lower economic returns, the fact that governments cannot monopolize cyberspace actually implies lower military costs and higher economic returns. This is because information technology creates a new dimension in protection. For the first time in history, information technology allows for the creation and protection of assets that lie entirely outside the realm of any individual government's territorial monopoly on violence. Countries in which the units of political power and governance are multiple and which lack a central, stable, unchallenged supervisory source of jurisdiction and power have to devise their own working solutions for dealing with the problems raised by such frontiers. Reese Davies The Analogy with the Frontier Cyberspace is, in one sense, the equivalent of a technologically protected March region of the kind that existed in border areas during the Middle Ages. In the past, when the reach of lords and kings was weak, and the claims of one or more overlapped at a frontier, something akin to competitive government existed. A look at how the March regions functioned could give insight into how laws of the March, or something like them, may migrate into cyberspace. Andorra survives as a kind of fossilized March region between France and Spain, an artifact of megapolitical conditions that made it difficult for either kingdom to dominate the other in that cold and almost inaccessible area of 190 square miles in the Pyrenees. In 1278, an agreement was struck dividing suzerainty over Andorra between local French and Spanish feudal lords. The French, Count of Foix, and the Spanish Bishop of Urgel, each appointed one of two viquiers, who sparingly exercised the minimal authority of government in Andorra, mostly by commanding the tiny Andorran militia, now a police force. The Count's role was long ago superseded by history. The French government now stands in for him from Paris. Among its duties is to accept half of the annual tribute that Andorra pays, an amount less than a single month's rent in a fleabag apartment. The Bishop of Urhel continues to receive his share of the tribute, just as his predecessors did in the Middle Ages. As the split tribute implies, there have been two sources of supervisory jurisdiction and power, rather than one, in Andorra. Appeals from Andorran civil suits were traditionally lodged either with the Episcopal College of Urhel or the Court of Cassation in Paris. A consequence of Andorra's ambiguous position was that almost no laws were enacted. Andorra has enjoyed vanishingly small government and no taxes for more than 700 years. Today, that gives it a growing appeal as a tax haven 
But until a generation ago, Andorra was famously poor. Once thickly wooded, it was deforested over the centuries by residents trying to stay warm in the bitter winters. The whole place is snowed shut from November through April each year. Even in summer, Andorra is so cold that crops grow only on the southern slopes. If our description makes it seem unappealing, you have just learned the secret of its success. Andorra survived as a feudal enclave in the age of the nation-state because it was remote and dirt poor. At one time, there were numerous medieval frontier or march regions where sovereignties blended together. These violent frontiers persisted for decades or sometimes for centuries in the border areas of Europe. Most were poor. As we mentioned earlier, there were marches between areas of Celtic and English control in Ireland, between Wales and England, Scotland and England, Italy and France, France and Spain, Germany and the Slav frontiers of Central Europe, and between the Christian kingdoms of Spain and the Islamic kingdom of Granada. Like Andorra, these march regions developed distinct institutional and legal forms of a kind that we are likely to see again in the next millennium. Because of the competitive position of the two authorities, each of which was weak, rulers would sometimes even solicit volunteers among their subjects to settle in march regions in order to increase the reach of their authority. Almost as a matter of course, the subjects were lured into settling in the march by freedom from taxes. Given the delicate margins upon which they competed, if either authority in a march attempted to impose taxes, he would make it more difficult for his followers to make ends meet, as well as give everyone a reason to affiliate with his competitor. Therefore, residents of a march usually had a choice in deciding whose laws they were to obey. This choice was based upon the weakness of the competing authorities. It was not an ideological gesture. Nonetheless, practical difficulties arose that had to be resolved. Under feudalism, landlords who owned property on both sides of a nominal frontier faced a serious conflict of duties. For example, a lord on the frontier of Scotland and England who held properties in both kingdoms could theoretically owe military service to both in the event of war. To resolve this contradictory obligation, almost everyone up and down the feudal hierarchy could choose whose laws to obey through a legal process called avowal. Information technology will create equivalent opportunities for competitive choice in domiciling economic activities, but with important differences. One is that unlike the medieval frontier societies, cyberspace is likely to be in due course the richest of economic realms. It will therefore tend to be a growing rather than a receding frontier. Few persons at the core regions of medieval society would have wished to move to frontiers without strong inducements, often including religious imperatives because these regions tended to be violent and poor. Therefore, they did not act as magnets, drawing resources out of the control of the authorities. Cyberspace will. Secondly, the new frontier will not be a duopoly, which invites collusion between the two authorities to compromise over their frontier claims. Such compromises tended not to be effective during the medieval period for two reasons. There were frequently sharp cultural gaps between the rival authorities, and more important, they lacked the physical capacity to impose a negotiated settlement, having insufficient military power on the ground. During the era of the nation-state, when national authorities did come to exercise sufficient military power to impose solutions, most march regions and vague frontiers disappeared. Border fixing became the norm. That is a stable solution if duopolists of violence face the prospect of dividing their authority over contiguous regions. But the competition in domiciling transactions in the cyber economy will not be between two authorities, but between hundreds of authorities throughout the globe. For the territorial states to create an effective cartel to keep tax rates high will be all but impossible. This will be true for the same reason that collusion to enjoy monopoly prices in markets with hundreds of competitors does not work. For evidence, consider the move by the Seychelles, a tiny country in the Indian Ocean, to enact a new investment law that U.S. government officials describe as a Welcome Criminals Act. Under the law, anyone who invests $10 million in the Seychelles will not only be guaranteed protection against extradition, 
but will be issued a diplomatic passport. Contrary to the assertions of the U.S. government, however, the intended beneficiaries are not drug dealers, who are generally under the protection of more important governments in any event, but independent entrepreneurs who have become politically incorrect. The first potential beneficiary of the Seychelles Law is a white South African who became wealthy by circumventing the economic sanctions against the former apartheid regime. Now he faces the danger of economic retribution by the new South African government and is willing to pay the Seychelles for protection. Whatever the merits of any individual case, the example shows why attempts by governments to maintain a cartel for protection on the ground are doomed to failure. Unlike the medieval frontier, in which the competition was between two authorities only, the frontier in cyber commerce will be between hundreds of jurisdictions, with the number probably rising rapidly to thousands. In the age of the virtual corporation, individuals will choose to domicile their income-earning activities in a jurisdiction that provides the best service at the lowest cost. In other words, sovereignty will be commercialized. Unlike medieval frontier societies, which were in most cases impoverished and violent, cyberspace will be neither. The competition that information technology is driving governments to engage in is not competition of a military kind, but competition in quality and price of an economic service, genuine protection. In short, governments will be obliged to give customers what they want. The Diminished Utility of Violence This is not to say, of course, that governments will resign from employing violence. Far from it. Rather, what we are saying is that violence is losing a good deal of its leverage. One possible reaction on the part of governments would be to intensify their use of violence in local settings in an attempt to compensate for its declining global significance. Whatever governments do, however, they will be unable to saturate cyberspace with violence in the way that they saturated the territories they monopolized with violence in the modern world. No matter how many governments try to enter cyberspace, they will be no more capable or powerful in that realm than anyone else. Ironically, attempts by nation-states to wage information wars to dominate or thwart access to cyberspace would probably only accelerate their own demise the tendency toward the devolution of large systems is already powerful because of the fallaway of scale economies and the rising costs of holding fragmenting social groups together. The irony of information wars is that they could well impose more of a shock to the brittle systems left over from the industrial age than to the emerging information economy itself. As long as essential information technology continues to function, Cybercommerce could proceed in tandem with the struggles of information war in a way that could never happen in a territorial war. You could not imagine millions of commercial transactions taking place at the front in one of the 20th century's wars. But virtual wars may not exhaust any capacity of cyberspace to host multiple activities. And because virtual reality does not exist, there will be little danger of proximity and almost none of being hit by exploding virtual shrapnel. Vulnerability of Large-Scale Systems The dangers of information war will mostly be dangers to large-scale industrial systems that operate with central command and control. Military authorities in the United States and other leading nation-states are both planning for and fearing acts of information sabotage that could have severe consequences for disabling large systems. An act of cyber warfare could close down a telephone switching station disrupt air traffic control, or sabotage a pumping system that regulates the flow of water to a city. A programmed virus could even close down conventional or nuclear generators, turning off segments of the electric grid. So-called logic bombs could scramble a great deal of information, the most sensitive of which is in central control systems, operating vulnerable large-scale systems inherited from the industrial age. Short of a massive and comprehensive destruction of all information technology, which would bring the world economy literally to a halt, cyber commerce and virtual reality will remain beyond the capacity of any government to stifle, much less monopolize. 
Even one of the signal drawbacks of information technology, the apparent vulnerability of information storage systems to decay and destruction, has been largely resolved by new archival technology. A new system, called High-Density Read-Only Memory, or HD-ROM, employs an ion mill similar to those used in computer-aided manufacturing systems to create archives in a vacuum. Storage capacity is now as high as 25,000 megabytes per square inch. Unlike earlier systems that were vulnerable to early decay and disruption by shock, data stored in HD-ROM promises to be around for the duration. One of HD-ROM's developers, Bruce Lamartine, says, It's virtually impervious to the ravages of time, thermal and mechanical shock, or the electromagnetic fields that are so destructive to other storage mediums. Even the detonation of a blast by nuclear terrorists would not necessarily scramble or destroy vital information, such as the codes to digital money, upon which the smooth functioning of a cyber economy will depend. Modern armies are so dependent on information that it is possible to blind and deafen them in order to achieve victory without fighting in the conventional sense. Colonel Alan Campen, USAF, retired. Superpowers of Virtual Warfare The assumptions of the nation-state at war will make less and less megapolitical sense as the importance of information in warfare increases. Because it has no physical existence, cyberspace is not a realm in which magnitudes as we know them in the physical world carry any commanding importance. It does not matter how many programmers were involved in stipulating a sequence of commands. All that matters is whether the program functions. The sovereign individual may truly count for as much in cyberspace as does a nation-state, with its seat in the UN, its own flag, and an army deployed on the ground. In purely economic terms, some sovereign individuals already command investable incomes in the hundreds of millions annually, sums that exceed the discretionary spending power of some of the bankrupt nation-states. But that is not all. In terms of virtual warfare waged through the manipulation of information, some individuals may loom as large or larger than many of the world's states. One bizarre genius working with digital servants could theoretically achieve the same impact in a cyber war as a nation-state. Bill Gates certainly could. In this sense, the age of the sovereign individual is not merely a slogan. A hacker, or a small group of mathematicians, not to mention a company like Microsoft, or almost any computer software company, could in principle do any or all of the things that the Pentagon's Cyber War Task Force has up its sleeves. There are hundreds of firms in the Silicon Valley and elsewhere that already have a greater capacity to wage a cyber war than 90% of the existing nation-states. Events of 1998 brought testimony from the U.S. president and his top aides that the leading enemy of the United States was not another nation-state, but Osama bin Laden, an exiled Saudi millionaire. The claim that bin Laden, an individual, was a significant threat to the greatest military power of the industrial age was backed up by a barrage of cruise missiles. We are not altogether convinced that bin Laden was not merely picked out to play the part of the Richard Jewell of the Nairobi bombing, but be that as it may, if an individual like bin Laden could be convincing as a dire threat to the United States as a terrorist, he, or another multimillionaire, could be even more convincing as a cyber-terrorist. For cyber-technology puts individuals at a lesser disadvantage in confronting large groups than they face in the realm of explosives and missiles. The presumption that governments will continue to monopolize life on the ground as alternative avenues for protection open on all sides is an anachronism. A far more likely outcome is that nation-states will have to be reconfigured to reduce their vulnerability to computer viruses, logic bombs, infected wires, and trapdoor programs that could be monitored by the U.S. National Security Agency, or some teenage hacker. The megapolitical logic of cyberspace suggests that central command and control systems that currently dominate the world's large-scale infrastructure will have to be replaced by multicentric models of security 
with distributed capabilities so they cannot be easily captured or blocked by a computer virus. New types of software, known as agoric open systems, will replace command and control software inherited from the industrial age. That older software allocated computational capacity according to rigid priorities, in much the same way that the central planners at Gosplan in the former Soviet Union used to allocate goods to boxcars by rigid rules. The new systems are controlled by algorithms that mock market mechanisms to allocate resources more efficiently by an internal bidding process that mimics the competitive processes in the brain. Instead of giant computer monopolies conducting important command and control functions, they will be decentralized in the new millennium. There is no better example of the resilience of distributed networks compared to command and control systems than that given by digital equipment at its Palo Alto Research Lab. An engineer opened the door to a closet that housed the company's own computer network. As recounted by Kevin Kelly, the engineer dramatically yanked a cable out of its guts. The network routed around the breach and didn't falter a bit. The information age will not only facilitate competition without anarchy in cyberspace, it will inevitably lead to the redesign of important systems left over from industrialism. Such a reconfiguration is essential to make them less vulnerable to mischief that could come from anyone or anywhere. Just as the industrial age inevitably led to the reconfiguration of institutions that were left over from the medieval period, such as schools and universities, so the leftover institutions of the industrial age are likely to devolve in miniature form in ways that reflect the logic of microtechnology. The need for protection against bandits on the information superhighway will require widespread adopting of public-key, private-key encryption algorithms. These already allow any individual user of a personal computer to encode any message more securely than the Pentagon could have sealed its launch codes only a generation ago. These powerful, unbreakable forms of encryption will be necessary to secure financial transactions from hackers and thieves. They will also be necessary for another reason. Private financial institutions and central banks will adopt unbreakable encryption algorithms when they realize that the U.S. government, and it may not be alone, has the capacity to penetrate current bank software and computer systems to literally bankrupt a country or sweep the bank account of anyone living almost anywhere. There is no technological reason why any individual or any country should leave his financial deposits or transactions at the mercy of the U.S. National Security Agency or the successors to the KGB, or any similar organization, licit or illicit. Encryption algorithms impenetrable by governments are not daydreams. They are available already as shareware over the Internet. When low-orbit satellite systems are fully operable, individuals using advanced personal computers with antenna no larger than those on portable phones will be able to communicate anywhere on the globe, without even interfacing with the telephone system. It will no more be possible for a government to monopolize cyberspace, a realm with no physical existence at all, than it would have been for medieval knights to control transactions in the industrial period astride a heavy charger. Protection by Stealth Information societies will place vast resources outside the realm of predation, when cyberspace comes increasingly to host financial transactions and other forms of commerce, the resources employed there will be more or less immune to ordinary shakedowns and theft. Therefore, predators will be unable to harness as large a share of resources as they do today and have done through much of the 20th century. Inevitably, therefore, government protection of a large part of the world's wealth will be redundant. Government will be no better situated to protect a bank balance in cyberspace than you are. As government will be less necessary, its relative price is likely to fall for that reason alone. There are others. With a large and growing share of financial transactions occurring in cyberspace in the new millennium, individuals will have a choice of jurisdictions in which to lodge them. 
This will create intense competition to price government services, the taxes it charges, on a non-monopolistic basis. This is revolutionary. As George Malone argued in the Wall Street Journal, the one institution that has most successfully resisted the forces of global competition has been the welfare state. A study by researchers at the Wharton School and the Australian National University discussed the forces coming to bear on income transfers. Jeffrey Garrett and Deborah Mitchell concluded that there is virtually no evidence that increased market integration has put downward pressures on their most fundamental welfare programs. To the contrary, they write, governments have invariably responded to increased integration into international markets by increasing income transfers. The advent of the cyber economy will at long last finally expose the welfare state to genuine competition. It will change the nature of sovereignties and transform economies as the balance between protection and extortion swings more completely on the side of protection than it has ever done before.